Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to, if you have a Bible, we're in Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16. Uh, some of you may actually have this passage memorized. Uh, but we're going to be in that passage this morning. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to read uh, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, and then pray. And then as a, a way of update of the church, we're going to use the update as an introduction and kind of bridge into this passage. So, we're going to hear from God's Word, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Father, as we turn to your word, we know we've prayed already, but we need your spirit now. So would you meet us, that we would experience the beautiful heart of Jesus Christ this morning. To his name we pray. Amen. Um, so, uh, in terms of an update for the church and just kind of how we're doing, uh, I'm going to back up to 2019. 2019 began, uh, for the church and for me in the middle of a massively nasty church discipline situation that involved a guy, um, in our church who went sideways. I'm not going to get into the details of what went on, but he was in and out of homelessness. And so for the first six months of 2019, I lived with a bat beside my side of the bed because I never knew if he was going to break into my house, be on my front steps when I walked out of the door in the morning to go to work or whatever. Um, we we're on the first floor of an apartment right by uh, the hospital, and so he knew how to get in our house. So that was how we started 2019. Um, uh, the latter half of 2019, some of you guys are familiar with uh, our leaving of our previous denomination, and that process was uh, nasty and uh, very discouraging. It felt like I was being prosecuted uh, by those friends and then fined on the way out the door and forgotten about. So that was how we ended 2019. Oh, let me not forget that in November 2019, I had a guy high on meth try to break in our back door of our apartment. <laughs> so, and we started 2020. Um, a second guy tried to break in our back door of our apartment. <laughs> And I was like, we're out of here. Uh, we just we actually were able to buy a house in the city uh, in a much safer place. But uh, I don't know if you guys have heard about this. Um, there's this little thing called a global pandemic going on. That happened in March. And then in May, on, uh, let's see, on May 6th, it was a Wednesday. Uh, one of my best friends uh, who was going to be an elder in the church told me that they were moving and leaving Manchester. Five days later, uh, Bill O'Grady, that I planted the church with, had a heart event, went into the hospital, uh, had a cardiac arrest on the table, and effectively died. He died 30 days later. And so within a matter of five days, I lost my two best friends that we planted the church with. Uh, so Jay Morris was going to be an elder in the church, and we have uh, sent him to go join God's mission in Knoxville. Uh, Bill O'Grady early 60s, I don't know if you know what an aortic dissection is, but his heart just totally unzipped in his chest. 
and I buried my best friends, my best friend. And my other best friend just moved. Um, in the middle of all of that, uh, we have not only had the global pandemic, but then just regular life stuff. We have four boys, and uh, my trophy wife is fantastic. But uh, my four boys are like the scene from uh, Jurassic World where Chris Pratt is holding off the raptors. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's our life. <laughs> so, I don't know what you feel like about 2020, but it is certainly one for the history books, and it is certainly very hard. It's been hard for us on a personal level. Um, it's obviously been hard for everybody at a global level. Um, I will remind you that... Uh, Historians consider the year 536 A.D. the worst year in human history because a volcano in Iceland belched enough ash into the air that it was dark for a year and a half. So we aren't there yet. But I can end 2019 and I can go towards the end of 2020 beginning to feel some calluses over my soul and beginning to wonder, God, I know that Jesus is true. We just sang about all these glorious truths. Jesus, you are true. We sit under the sky and worship our triune God. We know all of these wonderfully perfect, good things from the Bible, and yet we can often end the day, we can often begin towards ending this year wondering, Jesus, do you love me? Like, Do you care about me? I got it. You've got things under control, but... It seems like things are kind of falling apart for me, and I would like to know a little bit about how you think about me. So that is why we are in Hebrews 4. We are in Hebrews 4 because we want to confront, we want to address our own hearts, we live in this difficult and hard reality, and find help, healing, and solace in the beautiful heart of Jesus Christ. So the main point, if you're curious about what we're looking at, the main point we're looking at is the compassionate, beautiful heart of Jesus Christ is our refuge for life. I don't know what 2020 has been for you. Obviously, it's been hard for us. This is where we're going to find life this morning. This is where we are going to find change and healing. This is where we're going to find the energy to face tomorrow, the compassionate, beautiful heart of Jesus Christ, who is our refuge for life. So we're going to pick up back here in Hebrews 4. We're going to look at verse 14, and we are just going to look at this first part, confessing his compassion. Because we're going to look at this, and we're going to see that the first thing in terms of finding help for our lives, finding hope and healing in our souls, finding a happiness that is beyond the attacks of the world around us, we need to confess something. So verse 14, Hebrews 4 since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. He is our great high priest. He is, as the Bible would say, amazing and awesome and fantastic and beyond your imagination. He is a great high priest, right? A priest in the Old Testament, you'd go to him and be like, bro, I messed up. And he'd be like, that's cool, bro. We got this from the Bible. We know what to do. He'd take in your, your sacrifice for what you'd done, go into God make the sacrifice, then he would walk out with the grace in his presence to you to help you, to find mercy. 
And so Jesus is said to be the great high priest, the one who is high and above all others. He is the one that does it like nobody else. He is the high priest that goes into God's presence, brings that grace out for you by his very presence, his very person, and gives it to you personally. And yet when we read this, we can look at this and say, yeah, but he's kind of high and lofty. Does he really really know me? Does he care about me? You know, often when we think about uh, big, high, important people in the world, uh, I think about Bill Gates. I like him a lot. I'm a big fan of him. Um, not sure if you like him or not. I mean, you could be an Apple guy. I'm an Apple guy, but I know that, I know that some of you are Microsoft people. Bill Gates, um, you know, obviously doing major, major things in the world and doing a lot of philanthropy. Um, however, I, was re- I recently saw some clip of him on a game show where he was, like, asked, like, guess the cost of these grocery items. And he was like, ah, I know, like this box of pasta, like 15 bucks. (laughs) I was like, I don't think this guy's gone grocery shopping in probably like 40 years, you know, (laughs) or ever. You know, he's making these big global world changing decisions. And yet he can't even understand what it's like to put together a budget. You know, like, does he understand my needs? The same thing we can feel like with Jesus, right? Hebrews, Hebrews 1, it says that, He sits down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And so, when we think about this Jesus, is he aware of me and my needs? But I want to kind of drill into the very last word of verse 14 and kind of work backwards. Let us hold fast our confession. There is a confession that must come. There is a confession that we are required to hold. There is something that, that must go on here, and yet it is said in this verse to be tethered to Jesus Christ himself. I mean, here we are standing under this beautiful sky. Imagine Jesus Christ himself ascending into heaven, and there's something tethering your very heart to him like a balloon. I was driving with Pete yesterday. There these air balloons in the sky. Something tethering you. It is, it says, your confession, working backwards, that ties you to Jesus Christ, our high priest, who has passed through the heavens. Now, Jesus had a few words to say about what happened in this moment. Jesus up here, my heart down here. John 14, 15 to 17. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. You see, the Spirit is the binding person of the Trinity. The Spirit is the one that binds us into the heart of Christ. The Spirit is the one that comes and weaves us into the heart of Christ so that when we come towards this verse and say, let us hold our confession, you cannot make that confession without the Holy Spirit being in you, giving birth to those words to come out of your mouth. You see, Jesus Christ though he has ascended into the heavens, has himself given you the very means, the very energy, the very way of saying he is true by giving you the Holy Spirit so that when you have the thought, Jesus loves me. That is the Holy Spirit living inside of you. That is the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ gave to you so that you confess the very heart of Jesus Christ for you by the gift of the Holy Spirit that he has given you. You see, in the midst of our weakness and struggles, this creates 
a phone line, so to speak. I, you young kids don't even know what phone lines are. I, when I was a kid, we had these curly phone lines, and you'd have like the 20-foot one, and you'd walk way around the house, and then you'd have to like trip over it because you're like, Mom, get off the phone. You, it's a phone line, it's a big wire. Ties us to Jesus Christ himself. That is the Holy Spirit that gives a voice of our soul's struggles to his very ear. He hears our struggles. He hears our confession of need. Kings don't need to confess anything. People who are weak, who are broken, people who struggle, people who don't have their lives together, who are a big old hot mess and come out and sit on the Sunday morning in front of a big old hot sun, those are the people like you and me that need confession. But it's not just kind of like confess because you're so horrible. Jesus Christ gives you the ability to confess because he's given you his spirit to know his love for you. You see, this is what Jesus means in Matthew eleven twenty nine: I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus doesn't give us a Hallmark card. Jesus doesn't give us a cat poster. Jesus doesn't give us little memes of like, make it through the day. You got this. He gives you the third person of the eternal Holy Trinity to reside within you, to know and experience the depths and power of who he is. So that's where we're going to turn here in verse 15. Because we're confessing it, we've got to be seeing something. So that's what we're going to see in verse 15, seeing his compassion. Verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. You see, it's stated in the negative to underline the fact of its profound reality. Jesus knows your weakness. Jesus knows your struggle. And he knows the places of your life of what it's like to be you, and yet he did it without sin. That's the only difference. You see, Jesus didn't have to go to Barnes & Noble and pick up a book on weakness to kind of study and be like, hmm, what is it like for these mere mortals to be weak? No, Jesus lived it from the inside out. He lived inside your weakness, and yet without sin. He lived in your skin, in your life. It may not be all the details, right? Next verse, same rhythm and tune, right? It's the same realities that we struggle with. And so here what I want to do is I want to kind of, I want to jump out of this because we can say, okay, uh, he was able, he's able to sympathize with our weakness and he's been tempted as we are yet without sin and kind of understand, okay, like Jesus kind of gets it. But I want to delve into a few parts of Jesus' life and these are just, I, I may be counseling from the pulpit. This may just be where the spirits led us. We're just going to see. But these are a few moments where I think in Jesus' life, you begin to see his emotional experience of his world around him. You see the emotional dynamics of what he's working through, and you get a window into how he sees your weakness and your struggles, and he is able to say, I sympathize, I gotcha, and I've done it without sin. So what I want to do is I'm just going to pick up here we're going to go back to uh, Luke chapter 22. I, I'll read it if you don't have a Bible. 39 through 46. And I want to pull this out because if you feel like your life is overwhelming, that your life, when you get to the end of the day, you are white knuckling it. 
if that's what you feel like your life is like, Jesus has got you. So, 39, chapter 22 of Luke. And he went out and went, and as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you do not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed most earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you do not enter into temptation. Now, I just want to acknowledge the obvious, right? Jesus, he is sitting here in the Garden of Gethsemane at the very cusp of walking into the wrath of God to save us, right? I don't care what you got going on where you feel overwhelmed. Ain't nobody got that going on in their lives, right? However, his emotional experience, you could just simply say he was overwhelmed. He was experiencing intense agony. He looked at this and he said, I, Son of God, I know what's going down. But his humanity experienced that in such a way that his body responded. It's actually a medical condition where like, your blood vessels like, start kind of like going really thin and his blood and sweat mixed. He was in such deep agony. He knows the strain of an overwhelming life. He knows white-knuckling it, but he did it without sin. You see, he doesn't just white-knuckle it and then go open the bottle or turn on Netflix or you know, rage on Facebook or whatever. He goes in prayer and says, Jesus, God, you gotta, you got to do something here. you got to help me, but I'm submitting to you. He doesn't get rid of the overwhelming, right? He lives in it and through it. But he knows the experience of being overwhelmed, bewildered, and scared. He understands the emotional place of panic, right? Some of you may struggle with panic attacks. Jesus knows that emotional anxiety experience. So then we come back to Hebrews 4. We say, we know, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. If you have an overwhelming life, which good grief, and you just add all the pandemic stuff on top of everything else that's going on, like, yeah. Jesus knows what that's like. His heart is with you. Let's pick up another one. Mark 3, 1 through 6. Again, this is Jesus. He entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they, that's the Pharisees, watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And they were silent. And he looked around at anger, at them with anger, and grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. 
the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him to see how they might destroy him. You see, Jesus in this story, in this moment, is not angry at this man's physical disability. He's not angry at this man's handicap or whatever you want to call it. His anger was directed at professional pastors like me who looked at this man and said, are you going to break the law on the Sabbath? And Jesus is like, bro, like, the Sabbath is made for healing. <laughs> like, he's angry at the injustice of these guys looking at him, at this man in absolute need and denying him the mercy of God that they confess because of some weird ritual that they had. Like, Jesus looks at them and he is angry at their injustice. He is angry at the situation. He is angry at this vulnerable man being left, being left without healing. He is angry at their hardness of heart towards the justice that is due to this guy. And Jesus feels this anger, heals the man, and they walk away trying to figure out how they can kill Jesus. He is angry at the injustice of these pastors' hearts closed towards mercy and compassion. Jesus knows the pain of seeing people who should be working for good be so committed to evil. Jesus knows what it's like to see people who are in positions of power doing nothing about what they should be doing. I don't know what your experience of justice and injustice is, and we're not going to get into that whole discussion this morning. The point here is just simply to say that Jesus sees you in that moment of absolute anger and confusion, feeling this is wrong. This should not happen. God, do you see it? God, do you see Do you see this? Do you see what's going on? Ooh. God, do you care about this injustice? Do you know what that's like? I mean, I'm sure if I scroll through your Facebook posts, they would all be like happy ducks and stuff like that. I'm sure nobody gets angry about any of this stuff. Maybe it's just me that I look at things and I think, God, do you see what's going on here? This is wrong. This is wrong. Do you see it? And Jesus does. I have this book here, Gentle and Lowly. Anybody read this book? Okay, this is a big correction. Go flood Amazon, get this book. For real, guys. This book is fantastic. In this book, Dane Orwin gives this meditation on anger. Are you angry today? Let us not be too quick to assume our anger is sinful. After all, the Bible positively orders us to be angry when occasions call for it. Psalm 4.4 and Ephesians 4.26. Perhaps you have reason to be angry. Perhaps you have been sinned against. And the only appropriate response is anger. Be comforted by this. Jesus is angry alongside you. He joins you in your anger. Indeed, he is angrier than you could be about the wrong done to you. You're... Your just anger is a shadow of his, and his anger, unlike yours, has zero taint of sin in it. As you consider those who have wronged you, let Jesus be angry on your behalf. His anger can be trusted, for it is an anger that springs from his compassion for you. The indignation he felt when he came upon mistreatment of others in the gospel is the same indignation he feels now in heaven upon mistreatments of you. In that knowledge, release your debtor 
and breathe life again. Let Christ's heart for you not only, be, not only wash you in his compassion, but also assure you of his solidarity and rage against all that distresses you, most certainly death and hell. See, Jesus does not think that anger is sinful. He sees the injustice that you experience and the wrongs that you've walked through, and he hates them too. Let's do one more, and then we'll, we'll finish up. Matthew 13. Matthew 13, at the very end of the chapter, and when Jesus had finished his, with these parables, Matthew 13, 53, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom at these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Isn't that a... Sorry, a dig on blue-collar folks. Uh, his dad's not that smart. Where did he get all this stuff? <laughs> Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, except in his hometown and in his own household. He would not do any many mighty things there because of their unbelief. Now, it's not exactly stated on the page here, but when I read that, you go home to your hometown and everybody's like, his dad was dumb. Like, how did Jesus, how does he, who does he think he is? He's got to feel lonely. Whew. He's got to feel like my hometown is no longer my hometown. This is no longer the place that I belong. I, you could imagine Jesus in the middle of the night feeling absolutely lonely amidst this entire hometown situation where people that he grew up with, people that he probably, you know, did carpentry stuff for, have now just basically said like, man, get out of town. You don't belong here. Jesus should, I would assume, feel lonely. Jesus knows the pain of lonely thoughts in the middle of the night. I don't know if you're single or married. Just by the way, if you're single, married people get feel lonely all the time too. You know, like it's a, it's a common experience. You can have... Loneliness marks all of us. Jesus knows the weakness. He knows the strain. He knows the tears of feeling lonely. We could keep going on. Actually, when I did this for our church, I had like six of them. You guys are being spared a 50-minute sermon. But Jesus, when we look at Hebrews 4, and we look back at these words and it says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. When we look back through these gospel narratives, we should begin to see the emotional life of our Lord and Savior and see that He walked through our human skin, our human life, and knows the weakness that comes with our lives. He knows the struggle and strain, the sadness, the depression, the, the despair. He knows those emotional experiences, walked through those weaknesses, and yet did it without sin. So that when he looks on you, I got you, girl. I got you, brother. He holds you in his heart. So we're going to end this. Verse 16, receiving his compassion. Let us, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need.
In Jesus Christ, Dane Ortland later says, we are given a friend who will always enjoy rather than refuse our presence. You see, in Jesus here, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. How many of us, when we feel our weakness and struggle, we like bury it deep inside? Feel embarrassed. I can't believe I've got to ask for help again. Jesus sees that. And he says, well, come and talk. Let's have a sit down. Let's hang out and talk about what's going on. You see, Jesus, when he sees your struggle and need, he says, with confidence, draw near to me. And you know, it's interesting. When we look for advice in life and we're trying to like walk through things, you know, whatever your situation is, that's why we have like support groups for different types of struggles and people with different things going on. We feel like we get the most help from people that know our experience, right? <laughs> like, I don't talk to my 10-year-old son, Owen. Don't know what to do about this election, bro. I just don't know what's going down. Uh, who would you vote for? How would you process glo the global economy? Uh, American politics right now, Supreme Court justice going down. I mean, the kid, the kid, his big deal in life is that he's riding a bike and he puts Legos together. <laughs> you know? When Jesus looks at you, it's not the same. Yeah, he runs the world, he's at the helm of the world, and he's guiding everything, but he knows your struggles and experiences. You go to Jesus and get somebody whose heart for you understands the emotional turmoil, understands the stress of life, and he says, let's sit down and talk, right? Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, when we come to Jesus, we do not need to sugarcoat what's going down. We can be real honest. You can't just say, Jesus, here is how I'm feeling. I don't like it. I don't love it. I don't exactly want to stay here, but this is how I feel right now. I am angry beyond all get out. I cannot believe that I just yelled at my kids like that. Jesus, I am lonely. I feel like everybody has ignored me, forgotten me, and won't talk to me. I can't believe what the thoughts are going through my head related to this. And Jesus understands all of those experiences. Jesus understands what it's like to be in that situation so that when you come to him, you get from his heart and his eyes a direct line of sight, a direct access into his soul. And he says to you, I love you. That's what we get when we go to Jesus, right? When we come to him, we get somebody that's heart, that his heart lives to love you, right? Let us just kind of come towards a close here. Let's just skip over a couple pages to see Hebrews 7, verse 25, because this is where we're going to land here. Hebrews 7, verse 25, and I want you to pick up on one word here. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. If I were writing the Bible, I would be a little bit more kind of like project manager process. Jesus occasionally gives you attention when it comes up on his to-do list, sends you his Holy Spirit email, done, moves on. This says, he always, he always, right now at, 
11.52 and 40 seconds. And now at 11.52 and 55 seconds, he lives to love you. His heart is always making intercession for you. That means he's always aware of what's going on for you. His eye is on you. He loves you and he sees you with mercy. He is eager to know what is going down in your heart. He exists to be the glory, as the glory of the triune God. His heart beats with compassion and mercy for broken, weary, and tired people like you and me. You see, when we come to this, it stops this anxious thought in our hearts that somehow we're bothering him. Somehow we are inconveniencing Jesus. Somehow we are just kind of always that dead weight that he carries in the back of the boat. And instead, it stops those thoughts and it draws us to see that his spirit is leading us to confess our need for him. It stops those thoughts and says, that, that, that thought, God, do you see me? That's actually the Holy Spirit confessing our need for him. Jesus, do you see me? Girl, he sees what's going down in your life. He's lived through it. Jesus, can you help me? He doesn't always get rid of the overwhelming, angering, difficult situations. But he does give you the grace to walk through them because his heart enfolds around you. This is the beautiful, compassionate heart of Jesus Christ. He lives for you. Let me end with this quote from John Goodwin, English Puritan. He summarizes John 16 this way, of what Jesus is saying to us in John 16. It is as if he said, the truth is, I cannot live without you. I shall never be quiet until I have you where I am, so that we may never part again. That is the reason for it. Heaven shall not hold me, nor my Father's company. If I do not have you with me, my heart is set upon you. And if I have any glory, you shall have part of it. So when we look at Hebrews 4 and we see, we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with the weaknesses. We have one that is able to sympathize. We see in him this glorious, beautiful heart that comes towards us in all of the struggles of life. And he holds us. And so when we, you know, the main point of this is the compassionate, beautiful heart of Jesus Christ. He is our refuge for life, which is just another way of saying at the end of the day, Hebrews 14 is basically telling you, Jesus loves you. He gets you and he's with you. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.